that is exactly the theme of the book I'm working on right now. It's called The Comeback Quotient, and it's all about uh, the importance of that orientation toward reality, um, which I think is actually the essence of mental fitness. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, I, I define mental fitness as the ability to make the best of a bad situation. Mm-hmm. What does it take to do that? It takes the ability to accept, embrace, and address reality just as it is. That's what that is the gift. Like that, you know, the the people with sort of that the the Yodas of mental fitness endurance. Yeah. That is what they have. Like, you know, that's it. That's all you need. But it's mm-hmm. a lot, you know, because like we don't really we do try to deny and, and flee reality in all kinds and just you know BS ourselves in all kinds of insidious mm-hmm. ways. It, you know, it's it's easy to say. It's it's harder to get there. This episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpre, skincare for athletes. Whether you're in the gym, on the mats, on the road, or in the pool, we protect your skin so you're more comfortable in your own body. To learn more, go to solpre.com. Today on this episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast, my guest is a prolific writer and author. If you know anything about running, you've probably seen his stuff before. You may have even read one of his books. He is the author of Racing Weight, which I've had for years here on my desk. Um, He's also the author of 8020 Running and Triathlon, as well as his newest book, Life is a Marathon, and a ton of other books. Um, It would take a long time to get through quite all the titles that he's done. Um, he is a coach. You can find him with 8020 Endurance, um, and he's also a certified sports nutritionist. Welcome to the show, Matt Fitzgerald. Great to be with you. Matt, we were talking about your walls here. For the viewers on, on YouTube, can you, can you justify the orange here? Who, I mean, that's a pretty bold, it's a bold wall choice, so talk me through yeah. it. Yeah, well, before my wife and I bought this home, we toured like a zillion. Uh, we're in the Central Valley in California. We bought this home sort of at the height of the bubble, and we toured a lot of model homes in the area before buying ours just to see what we liked and didn't like. And in one, there was an office with like dark wood furniture and orange walls. Okay. And I was like, I want that. And so <laughs> basically, I just recreated it. Uh, that was many years ago now, and I don't know. It's like a feng shui thing. I spend a lot of time in here trying to be creative, uh-huh. trying to write things that don't suck, and just having an environment that is pleasing to me. I think it makes a difference. Yeah. Well, there's, um, so I spent a fair amount of time in the art room in high school, and uh, some some a little bit in college as well. But the, at the time, I I studied a little bit more into kind of color theory, and there's this whole idea about um, you know, different colors affect our moods and all this kind of thing. And orange is definitely on the like vibrant spectrum. Um, as I was telling you before we got going, I actually had an orange bedroom and that was <laughs> what I read at the time was that's a big no, no, because like orange is supposed to be so energizing and vibrant and like awake. Right. It's a terrible environment for, for sleeping. So there may be something to, to having those orange walls to get like the creative juices flowing. Yeah, I don't sleep in here. That's for sure. <laughs> I, no, no, no. Like uh, mid-afternoon naps. You're like your brain gets tired of working on new articles, and you're like take a nap. No, none of that. No, I'm I'm not a napper. Uh, I just uh, I, I had to do it a little bit two years ago. I trained with a team of professional runners and Flagstaff, and and they said and they all napped like I, all these runners and i'm like i just don't have time and by the end i was there for 13 weeks by the end i was napping <laughs> but uh, yeah but I've, I've got to be pretty desperate to to go down for a 20 minute cat nap yeah i i feel like i can't help myself some days but it has to do with the training load and which maybe that's what you experienced training yes. with the pro runners they're definitely like making you get after it that's what it was <laughs> <laughs> so i i um heard you say in one of your uh, other interviews that I listened to um, that at the time, I think you may have been referring to Life as a Marathon, you said you were saying uh, you're trying to sell a book that nobody wants. And that kind of resonated with me as an entrepreneur thinking about, you know, people, I, people either creating something and then trying to sell it or, or trying to find something people want and, you know, creating it. Obviously, you know, Racing Weight is one of your best selling books. Do you 
find yourself often writing about things that you just care about, or do you try to find things that you know people want to read and then write that? I love that question uh, because it is something I uh, think about a lot myself. You know, I grew up writing poetry. Actually, I mean mm-hmm. that that was my natural way of expressing myself through writing. But I knew like that's a tough way to make a living. <laughs> so I this is something I've been thinking about for a long time. You know, because yeah. you you want to write. It, you know, for me, writing really is first and foremost self-expression, and I would write. Um, even if I couldn't make money doing it, you know, mm-hmm. if I had to get some other type of job, I would not stop writing because I can't. And then it would be pure self-expression, right? So that, you know, I have to scratch that itch. But at the same time, you know, I just sort of fell into a career where, you know, mostly what I write about is, um, you know, what's classified as, you know, service journalism. So I, I'm trying mm-hmm. to, people don't pick up one of my books generally just hoping that, it transports them to a different place where they can just enjoy nine hours of escape, you know, from reality. Yeah. They want, they're, they're picking it up saying, what's in it for me? Like, right. right. <laughs> you know what I mean, don't entertain me, like make me a better runner. So it, there's a balance there. So, you know, when I, you know, fortunately I do, I am kind of an idea factory, so I'm always coming up with ideas, but they really, there are two sources for that. There's just, you know, as an athlete myself, as a coach, as uh, just a curious person who's very passionate about these sports. Um, I just come up with ideas that I think are cool. But at the same time, I look for needs. And I do, you know, if I have maybe three or four things I would love to write about, well, the one I write about next probably will be the most marketable one. You know what I mean? Right. Unless right. it's just something I feel like I've just absolutely, I have to write and I don't care if it, it sells. But Racing Weight is a good example of that, mm-hmm. uh, where you know, as an athlete, um, I just saw like, man, all these skinny people are sitting around complaining about how fat they are. <laughs> like there's a, there's a need. Here. I do that. I do that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so that that was a case where um, I, also, I also saw people pursuing weight management as athletes in uh-huh. kind of dumb ways, you know, just the way non-athletes were doing it because there was no, you know, legitimate resource. Right them to turn to. So I felt like, okay, this could, this could, um, (laughs) make some money, but also like there's a legitimate need. And I, I feel like I will offer something that I actually believe in myself as a, as, as an alternative to the South beach diet or whatever was big at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like, so like, I guess to me, so as an entrepreneur, I think about like my, my raison d'être or like the, the, the reason I do things is, is basically to provide value and that's to solve people's problems or in some ways, because it could be providing entertainment, but it's to me, I gain satisfaction from providing something that somebody else needs or wants and kind of giving myself to a cause greater than my own selfishness. Yes. Which is so. different from which is different from an artistic mindset, you know. Right. Like a pure artistic mindset, it really is just like you feel like, uh, and this is something you know, because I've been writing since I was a child, and yeah, there, there is a purity to creativity at that age. You're not, right. you know, you're not thinking. You're not, yeah, you're not marketing anything. You're no. just. But you know, that's still in me, and and sometimes I'll just um, my my newest book is a good example of that life is a marathon where i felt it's just the feeling is it's a little absurd phrased this way but it is that's how you perceive it like i have to get this written before i die i must you know what i mean <laughs> it's just like you have to like it you it won't let you go until yeah. until you it's you know you got to give birth to this thing then you can move on with your life <laughs> yeah well in you know you're talking about having passion for writing and but you're you're writing as a you're you're a working writer you know you make a living from doing it which i find often people talk about if you follow your passion and you do it as a job and you can be successful doing it you know barring all the obstacles to get there that often it will kill your passion so how do you how do you maintain that you know love for it when you are in effect trading it for you know income yeah. Um, 
I guess, you know, I, I'm, in, I'm fortunate in that regard as well. And, and maybe it just ties into the other way I mentioned earlier that I consider myself fortunate is that I have a lot of ideas. Um, mm -hmm. I just I just have this kind of fire in me that, you know, I'm 48 now and it's just not it's showing no signs <laughs> of burning itself out. I, yeah. I mean, truly. Um, so I'm just, you know, I wake up each day just... I wake up the same way my dog does, just like, let's go. Yeah. <laughs> it's a new day. <laughs> it's going to be great. And it's not always a great day, but, you know, there's always something like I can't wait to get my hands into. Yeah. Um, and that's not a really helpful answer because it's, you know, if I if I if I struggle with it more, maybe I could give people tools to, <laughs> to overcome, you know, that that flagging motivation or, you know, when the when the fire does sort of um turn to embers like how do you stoke it again i don't know yeah. it's just always just this raging conflict conflagration for for me well see and i see i almost wonder if it's something i'll say genetic but something inherent in you because I, I think in another interview you're talking about um just your your kind of passion for running and how that's not really abating either it's 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 this you're at the time you were talking about um, recovering after a marathon and being ready to go even the next day when the wounds are still fresh. And that's not, that's, I won't say it's abnormal, but it, it, it's definitely different than I'll say a mainstream perspective about life where it's like, all right, I did the hard work. Now I need to like take, take time, take time off. I mean, we have a weekend every, every week so that you can take time off from doing your regular thing. Um, so I wonder if maybe it's just, you know, in your in your genetic code to kind of keep pushing those things forward i i think it i think it has to be honestly i don't, yeah. I don't see any other explanation and you know it's just one of those things where you know i know other writers who are they love writing um it's something they could never let go long term but they can go three or four months without writing and some of them need to you know what i mean like yeah. they spend a year 15 months or more working on a book and when it's done they're like i'm good you know i'm good for a few months like me if i go three days without writing at any point it's like three days without running i am yeah i'm i i need psychiatric help at that point. <laughs> <laughs> so is it almost like a catharsis uh catharsis to get get that out to like when it's like because you have so many ideas and, and obviously you're very prolific how many books are you up to at this point if you if you count everything, so, I mean, because a couple are co-authored. One is just right. like a glorified, you know, training diary. It's I think twenty six published. I wanted to say it was over twenty. Yeah, and just you have to. You know, I mean, you're like almost like Stephen King. You're just churning out books, but like it almost seems like because of that nature of thinking so many ideas that you have to get them out. Otherwise, do they do that escape you if you don't get them down? No, I mean, one thing I, I've learned of, is that, you know, if it's meant to be, it'll come back. Okay. Uh, and, and, you know, a lot of things that, that end up becoming books, I, uh, I I allow to gestate just in another corner of my brain for a mm -hmm. long time, sort of just let the muse work on it. Like, I'll have the idea, but it's in inchoate, and I just don't know if it has legs. Um, so Diet Cult is a, is a great example of that, where yeah. just... The seed was planted when I just started to wonder as someone who was telling people how to eat, like, why, why are people so irrational about food? Like, this really isn't that hard, you know, but I, I just, um, yeah, I felt like I was getting so much pushback from uh, the inability of people to think straight about food. And yeah, but I, I allowed that idea to develop for a long time before I felt like I had like a clear message. You know that that concept of a diet cult came you know, you know, became conscious for me. It was just kind of passed through that curtain from the muse to to consciousness, and then I'm like, yeah. hey, I've got a book here. Uh, but that took a long time. And that and that method you were talking about in diet cult, you you refer to it as uh, agnostic was it agnostic diet or agnostic, agnostic health? healthy eating? Yes. Okay. Yeah, because um, I was looking about that. You mentioned in, in um, an interview about that, you mentioned being wary of choosing the experts 
that you want to follow since we, we have a likelihood of wanting to follow the people we already want to follow like effectively an echo chamber chamber which is a big issue socially right now where we have the ability to kind of isolate ourselves into this camp or that camp and not listen to any outside ideas um i also this this is a, maybe a personal question i also you mentioned um you mentioned Siddhartha Gautama in another interview. I kind of wonder if you studied Buddhism at all, because that that quote about being wary of choosing your um, your leaders and being critical reminded me of uh, the teaching to the Kalamas, where the Buddha mentions, you know, don't even listen to the things that I'm telling you. Verify your own the claims for yourself. Yes, uh, Nietzsche has a very similar quote. Uh, he said, you know. Basically, I wish everyone would follow my own example and think for themselves. <laughs> so right. I want you to follow me by not following me. Um, but actually, my, my older brother is a Buddhist, so okay. I've, been, I've been exposed to it, um, you know, both meditation and Buddhist teachings through him. So, you know, I've just sort of flirted with the path a bit myself, but it just didn't ever speak to me quite the same way. I mean, right. my brother lived at the San Francisco uh, Zen Center for a long time, actually yeah. became uh, a Buddhist priest, you know, sits every single day. Um, that's so, yeah, but it's been cool just to have a, you know, a, a sibling who is able to feed a lot of the goodies to me, but I, I don't have to, <laughs> I don't have to meditate every day. <laughs> running, well, running it's like... my meditation. Yeah, it's like I mean, I, I go, but there's a there's a lot of like quotes that run around in my head. You know, the the quote about you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. So it's like some of those things are gonna rub off on you whether you want them to or not. Especially mm -hmm. if they're you know off repeated, you know, at, say at family dinners or holidays or anything like that. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I'll just toss this in. But, uh, so the same brother, Josh. I should give him a name. He's a uh, He's all he's a runner, too. And he's he's three years older. He's 51 years old. He's kind of making uh, a middle age comeback trying to get to Boston. OK, he ran a 250 mar 259 marathon at 19 off of like. Mostly beer as his <laughs> training. OK, he's he's perfectly talented enough, but he he kind of went far off and it's been a tough road for him. And, and he was really in the zone. He was in a, a purple patch, like running better than he had in years. And he just uh, got injured yesterday. Um, we, we have, we're just, we're just over three weeks out from a marathon. Yeah. And like, he, he just sends me a text saying it's been sort of this recurring piriformis thing. And he had this like big setback with it. And I, I'm devastated. I read the tech. I'm, I'm his coach. I'm his brother. I care a lot. I'm invested in this thing. Yeah. But his, his level of equanimity about the whole thing is just incredible. I mean, like he, he you know, it's real when you walk a spiritual path like this uh -huh. and really do the walking. Um, it changes you. It's, it's just yeah. been really cool to see. So I hope some of that is rubbing off on me as well, because he's yeah. just, the injury is the injury. It is frustrating, but he is dealing with it psychologically as well as any human being possibly could and it's that's right. got to redound to his ultimate benefit right yeah I, I i think we can't all kind of well maybe not everybody but i definitely aspire to that kind of um even-handed approach to both the highs and the lows of life where it's like you know even if you our world champion it's like that's awesome that's what you've been striving to achieve but it is not everything and at the same time like i actually went through this last year i was at a half ironman race trying to qualify for my professional license and was forced into a crash and shattered my collarbone in the middle of my best performance ever um and it was definitely shattering but at the same time it was like you just have to deal with it as it comes like there's nothing you can do like it is what it is. I say that often um, that people around me will tell you that. And I think that's kind of the essence of it. It was like, well, I can't get back on the bike and continue riding. It, it, I have to take care of this now. That's simply what's put in front of me. And I think it's maybe trying to get to a place where you accept reality for what it is rather than stressing about what you expect or hope it to be. Yes. By the way, that is exactly the that is exactly the theme of the book I'm working on right now. It's called the Comeback Quotient, and it's all about 
the importance of that orientation toward reality, um, which I think is actually the essence of mental fitness. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, I, I define mental fitness as the ability to make the best of a bad situation. Mm-hmm. What does it take to do that? It takes the ability to accept, embrace, and address reality just as it is. That's what that is the gift. Like that, you know, the the people with sort of that the the Yodas of mental fitness endurance. Yeah. That is what they have. Like, you know, that's it. That's all you need. But it's mm-hmm. a lot, you know, because like we don't really we do try to deny and, and flee reality in all kinds and just you know BS ourselves in all kinds of insidious mm-hmm. ways. It, you know, it's it's easy to say. It's it's harder to get there. I think at least for me experience and just the repetition. I mean, I've been, I've been an endurance athlete. We're going on, this will be year 19 season 19. We're starting here. Um, so it's like almost just doing it over and over and over and over again. Like you start to see the cycles of training, the cycles of your life, realizing things that are important. Like the podcast has helped me a lot talking to different high level athletes and kind of their perspectives and the things they've gone through. Um, we're like, you know, for me, the last two seasons have been, um, it, it could be really incredibly frustrating. So, you know, I, I've been chasing trying to be a professional triathlete for eight years. I'm not quite good enough to do it, but it was a personal goal that I was after. Um, and I was getting close. So I had that injury. I had to have surgery. I was out for three months, getting back into training. And then coming into this year, uh, not great weather. First race, bike mechanical cost me a couple places. Next race, tire pops four minutes into the bike, just on and on and on and on. And it's just a matter of um, the phrase or quote I like to tell people is all you have to do, there's a brick wall in front of you, and all you have to do is keep smashing your head against the brick wall. Eventually, it will break. <laughs> like, it's going to hurt. It's not fun, but it will break. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, in lieu of finesse, all you have to do is just keep keep after it like and something will break free eventually yes like uh desi linden's quote after she finally won the boston marathon keep showing up Mm -hmm. okay and that's i mean that's something that comes up in entrepreneur circles too is like all you have to do to be successful is show up because so many people don't show up right so it's like if you commit to that consistency whatever it is whether it's running or like you churning out books you know, you're going to be successful to a greater or lesser degree because you keep showing up. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I, I couldn't agree more. You know, it's amazing. Like, you, you can you can just stay in the game without any real goal in mind, and yet a transformation will, will occur. You know, mm-hmm. when I was a high school runner, I would get, I would get, so nervous before races that I was like sick. Yeah. This would be like not the morning of the race, like three days before the race. Like well, on it's Wednesday. Almost, it's almost worse then because you can't alleviate it. There's no I mean, imminent there's race. No, it's just like weighing on you. You can't flip the switch and you know turn it into something kinetic. But now, you know, I, I don't get nervous at all before mm-hmm. races. I mean at all. I get excited. Like on that, when I'm on that start line, I want to be there more than anyone else on that start line. I promise you, I'm amped. I'm in, I'm in a performance mindset. It's not that I don't care, but nervous. No. And, and how did that happen? I just kept racing. (laughs) You know, it's just like, I, the pain is so familiar. The pressure is so familiar that, you know, I didn't have a strategy, you know, to have to experience that sort of, you know, transformation it just it just was this natural evolution well i think i i think i remember you saying in another interview that you've um failed most of your running career and then started to find a modicum of success do you feel like that i don't know how you define failure but do you feel like that series of not necessarily meeting your own expectations sets you up to be like more ready to just continue no matter what yeah um yeah i mean i i i've had a few issues i mean one i'm very injury prone like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm dealing with something right now i'm actually supposed to run the same marathon my brother josh is supposed to run okay. on september 21st 
I'm going to run the damn thing, but uh, it, it will not be 100% optimal preparation. Uh, so there's that. And, and that, you know, early on, I, I, a lot of my injuries were just, or at least some of them, were my own fault. You know, just stupid mistakes. But, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not an idiot. I stopped making the stupid mistakes and I would still get injured. So a lot of the failure had to do with that, like not always making it to the start line, not okay. uh, not always making it to the finish line once I started. Mm -hmm. uh, but then, you know, I, you know, my mental game had to evolve uh, as well. So, um, yeah, I don't know. You know, like I, I ran my fastest marathon at 46, having done my first marathon at 28. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, that that... I think that was only possible because I had never reached my potential in my 30s. You know, I lost some of my best years yeah. to, to injury. Um, so I think, you know, that that's part of it. But part of it is just also, um, you know, I have learned a lot. I mean, I have, you know, just I have a ton of experience at this point. Um, you know, I just I, I did my second Ironman this spring, having done my one previous Ironman 17 years before mm -hmm. and i destroyed my time from when i was 31 at 48 yeah. um, so that's why like a lot of you know i i've had like a lot of unfinished business and i have been able in recent years to sort of clean that up yeah which has been super satisfying i still look back on the the whole arc of my you know career as a runner thinking what might have been <laughs> but I, yeah. I think it's hard not to do that you know no for anybody yeah yeah uh but i mean you have to be at peace with it too because so many people yeah. i remember um <laughs> recently bernard legat uh saying like he's like embarrassed about his mile pr i think like his uh -huh. pr wow i mean you think about all that dude has achieved <laughs> but you know you know what he wasn't he had a point it's really not even that good i think it's like yeah. 347 you know he just didn't run the mile that often like he you know right I think he ran 327 for 1500 meters. Well, not many people in history have ever done that, but he just only had so many chances. And when he looks back at, he, you know, you can't be a competitor and not have that. It's if you, if you, if you have a high bar, it's a high bar and you're just going right. to beat yourself up about having run only a 347 mile. <laughs> right. There's, there's something that's still nagging at you. Like, no, I like, 5,000, 5,000, 10,000, really great at those, but no, like I should have spent more time on the, yeah, there's, you, you can't do it all, but yeah, when you have that competitive mindset, there's definitely going to be something where you feel like, ah, you know, I didn't, I didn't leave a hundred percent out there or I, there was some, some little kernel of extra speed I could have gotten somewhere on that course. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that, um, kind of reminds me of, so like, I really like, I haven't yet picked up 80, 20 running, um, but I, I can kind of get the idea because the Pareto principle shows up everywhere. Um, but you had mentioned uh, in, in another interview having fun basically 80% of the time and then really needing to suffer 20% of the time to you know, kind of maximize your potential as an athlete. Does that, does that same ratio show up in terms of that mental preparation that you need? Yeah. They're, they're, the physical and the mental are two different 80-20s, I, I would say, because at least speaking for myself, and I think a lot of athletes are the same way, the, the workouts I most enjoy are the hardest ones. Mm -hmm. you know I mean? So I, I love a good, you know, e easy, long bike ride or run. But, you know, the ones like I just, you know, I circle the calendar mm -hmm. And just can't wait are the ones where I'm just going to turn myself inside out. And <laughs> I don't know what it, it's not masochism. It's just like, it's fun to go fast. Like, right. And it, you, it, you know, it is fun to not suffer, but to master suffering to like, you know, to just put yourself in the fire and not blink. There's just, it's to me, it's interesting. It's engaging. Mm -hmm. And, I feel at home there after having, I've built a home there. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. So it can, it become, it can become tempting. Well, would I want to do that every day? Like a CrossFit type of thing? Like, you know, hundred <laughs> percent, every workout, no, no way. Part of the yeah. reason the, the hard workouts are, are enjoyable is that you only get to do so many of them. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, you, 
you, you got to go easy 80% of the time, but that's not necessarily the fun part. Uh, you know, like for me, most of the fun is in the 20%. <laughs> yeah. That reminds me of it. I don't know who wrote this article, but it wouldn't be, it would surprise me if it ended up being you. I had this article saved for a long time in, in the title basically captures the whole thing. It says, uh, your hard days are too easy and your easy days are too hard. Like, Everybody's trying to like people go to this like medium speed instead of really like making this dichotomy where okay you're taking it easy because it's recover and then here's that special day where like it's time to like really suffer and you know get to that next fitness level. Yeah, that's you know you know a lot of people they will when they have when they have sort of a shallow exposure to my eighty twenty concept, mm. which is really Steven Seiler's eighty twenty concept. Um, you know, they, they think, okay, he's saying we got to slow down, that our easy days are too hard. But people who get stuck in that moderate intensity rut, which is really, really mainly a function of just thinking the mentality, every time I get out the door, it's got to count. And mm -hmm. you know, people can't understand how it could possibly count if it's really easy and comfortable. Mm -hmm. But the trouble is, like, when you get into that rut and everything you do, nothing you do is truly easy then you're never actually really going all that hard too. Right. You know? Right. It's it's folks like us who really go easy on our easy days who who you know bust our butts on the select days when we're intended to at a level the modern intensity folks never touch. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, it's sort of they're missing out on on both sides. Well, I wonder too it it, it comes up a lot with the, the, all the people I talk to where it's like like fun is this central theme and whether I've, I've talked to pro athletes, I've talked to high level amateur athletes and it's like enjoyment during the suffering is what makes them do it. So I kind of wonder if maybe part of the equation for the kind of moderate intensity folks is a lack of enjoying the higher end suffering. And it's like, they get to say, say, We'll go one to a hundred. They get to fifty, and that's kind of their threshold of like, I don't really want to go any harder than that. I feel like I'm working hard, so obviously I'm putting some work in, but then I don't want to go to ninety because that's way too hard. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I don't, I don't know. It's just, it's just complete conjecture on my my part, but I kind of wonder if maybe that's, you know, part of the case for people that know better. I guess I'll say not amateurs that just don't know what they're doing. Yeah, well, as a coach, that that is my experience. Is that um, actually? I, I just got through reading uh, David Goggins' book uh, "Can't Hurt Me," mm -hmm. um, and and he makes exactly the same point in there, which is like basically every endurance athlete is seeking a challenge, but they're only seeking challenge to a point. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, it's actually it's only a and credit to anyone who chooses to, you know, sign up for a marathon or a triathlon because you're doing better than most people, you know. Yep. Um, but within that, you know, self-selected population of people who enjoy a challenge, there's a subpopulation of people who are really interested in finding their limit, you know, mm -hmm. just, you know, you know, racing. Uh, leaving it truly, leaving it all out on the race course and preparing in a way that allows that to be possible. Yeah, and I, you know, um, I, I think you mentioned again in another interview. Since that's why I, I did most of my research on you is you mentioned um, tr basically training yourself over time to be able to get to the point that you can leave it all out on the race course. And I, I think for me. Um, Personally, I can count the number, and I've, like I said, I've, I've raced, this is year 19, I can probably count on one hand the number of races where I, I truly feel entirely satisfied that I could not have physically pushed my body any harder. And getting to that peak is, at least for me, incredibly difficult. Mm -hmm. You know, my, the, the one that comes to my mind the most often was the first time I went under 16 for the 5k and I previously I'd only gone like 1630 or so. So it was a big jump and the last thousand meters of the race, my entire body was on fire. And, and for those not doing the quick math, a thousand meters 
at that pace lasts about three, three and a half minutes. So you've got three and a half minutes of just complete agony trying to will yourself forward. And, and that's not even my fastest 5K, but it is the most, it's the race I'm most proud of probably because I, I don't know that I've achieved that level of suffering and intensity in any other setting. Right. So Yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, there are some people who just, they do it from the very first race they ever do. They just flip a switch and they leave it, they leave it all out there. They're just mm-hmm. uh, animals. Um, uh, Scott Fobble, one of the members of the pro team in Flagstaff that I trained mm-hmm. with two years ago, is just one of those guys where it's just, there's just, well, you know, he, he, if he were sitting here, he would say, well, I've cultivated it, you know, mm-hmm. but still there's just something in him. Right. Um, for the rest of us, uh, we got a bootstrap <laughs> there. But that is like the measuring stick. Um, yeah, perf- there's performance, but that's why, you know, some champion athletes will, they, they, they take no pleasure in winning easy because mm-hmm. that's right. When it comes down to it, actually, it's not about winning. That They want to win, but they want to win and know that they found their absolute limit. And a lot of them, uh, Dave Scott's a great example when, you know, he won Ironman six times. And if you ask him, like, what is your absolute favorite you know the race you're most proud of he he'll say it's when i got well second to mark allen in 89 Mm -hmm. because it was just the greatest race ever run run and it was his fastest iron man in hawaii ever and then when he got second again at 40 you know when he when he came back it's like dude dude was the world champion six times and his a legend and his two favorite races he got second because Mm -hmm. Those are the ones where he felt like he truly found his limit. Yeah. Well, I think it's it's a matter of even if you're going to win, like to me, you only want to win by a slim margin because you feel like, was there something more out there? Like, was I really tested both by myself, by my own mind and by my competitors? Right. So there's, I feel like there's more, and I've only recently won my first race ever and I was satisfied with it because I had to claw back several minutes on the run it was a triathlon i was several minutes down on the bike and caught this gentleman on the run um and then put time into him but anyway it it would not have been satisfying had it been you know i was out of the water first he put time on me in the bike if i had just been wire to wire it'd been like well i know there's faster guys out there like it wasn't satisfying right so i think it's a matter of at least for me a test of both my my personal aptitude and then knowing that somebody else wants it just as bad as I do. Right. And that I came out triumphant in that particular battle. Yes. That's why, you know, when I was, uh, you know, a lot younger, I used to wonder, wonder because really I, I thought that all I really cared about was getting faster. Mm-hmm. And I used to wonder, well, when I, when I reach a certain age and I'm not getting faster anymore, is like the rug going to get pulled out from my right. Room? Am I going to have no reason to want to continue doing this? And, you know, that was just naivety and immaturity when I actually got older and, um, you know, sort of had to come to terms with the, 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 the peak and the, the Mm -hmm. downward slope. Um, I realized, you know, well, there's a few things that keep me in it, but part of it is that you can still keep improving the mental game. Like you can, like, it's like, you know, your ultimate limit is like this asymptote. You know, you, you can get closer and closer to it. Do you ever absolutely reach it and know right. it? It always diverges to infinity. Like, <laughs> Yeah. To me, um, you know, that's why I feel like I can just keep getting better. You know, my body my body's not going to get stronger at this point, mm-hmm. but I can keep getting better at that um, aspect of it. You know, and, and just things like the challenge I'm facing right now, I'm, I got pretty darn fit for this marathon in September. Then I had, uh, you know, a setback. And now I'm actually just really enjoying the challenge of saying, of scrambling. I love that term from golf. You know, you hit an errant tee shot, the plan goes out the window because the ball ends up in a lie that you Mm. never practice for. So you have to fall back on, you know, a lot of stuff. You got to, you got to keep a level head You've got to just fall back on the experience you've acquired over time. And some people are really good scramblers, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, 
And I, you know, that's what I'm doing as a runner right now. And, you know, I was telling a, a guy I coach recently, just sort of asking me how it's going. And I said, you know, my goal at this point is to imagine there are 100 different people in exactly the same situation I'm in. I want to manage this thing better than the other 99. Like that will be winning for me. Like, you know, I know I'm not going to run the time in the marathon that I would have if I hadn't had the setback. You know, whatever that time ends up being, right. uh, I'll be satisfied or dissatisfied to one degree or another. But the ultimate satisfaction will be knowing, oh, yeah, I could not have managed these last several weeks since I had the setback any better. Uh, and there's it's, you know, there's it's fun. I'm enjoying it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's I mean, that's part of the game, right? It's just like like we talked about earlier, dealing with it as it comes. Right. Whatever it is. So. Right. Um, that kind of leads me into um, the new book, Life is a Marathon. Um, in in um, a sit-down interview or, or podcast you did about the book, you mentioned something along the lines of like sharing these really hard struggles. I think you mentioned um, suicide in, in the quote. Like this isn't necessarily something people want to read. Um, although I would actually disagree with you <laughs> because because I think – these struggles that people have, be it mental illness or um, just everyday life that you can't classify in some kind of medical term, I think we all go through those things. And, and it's not always right in kind of polite society to talk about those things, but it's super important to talk about them because that's, I guess, in my opinion, the, the part of the deeper essence of humanity is dealing with those those struggles so i you know what kind of so far the book's bit the book came out was it march april yep yeah um so far what kind of feedback have you gotten what when you know what have you experienced from actually having people read it and you know letting you know what they think yeah so i mean i can encapsulate it in an email i received uh maybe three days ago from um well, I'll just keep him completely anonymous. I won't give any identifying characteristics, but he's someone okay. who just, who I, I have known and who read the book, uh, probably wouldn't have read it if we didn't have, you know, a connection. Mm -hmm. um, and then he emailed me just to say, to share his story. And he, uh, he was abused as a child. He became addicted to drugs, uh, mm -hmm. meth. I think there might've been something else in there. Uh, was in this really bad cycle for a long period of time. Um, running ended up being kind of his way out. That, mm -hmm. That's how we ended up uh, connecting. Um, but he didn't, you know, he's younger and uh, he didn't really quite understand, like, why do I feel this way about running? And, um, and he's still in the, in, in the, I mean, he's in a much better place. You know, he's, he's sober uh, the running is is totally a positive thing in his life, you know, not like a bad substitute addiction, but he's still yeah. at the point where he's trying to like make sense of it all. And he, he said that, you know, my book was very clarifying for him. I, you know, I'm, I'm sharing a different kind of story, but, you know, just it's just, you know, it's about deep personal struggles and. Uh, you know, run the marathon is kind of a metaphor for that, but also running literally as a way of training yourself for a hard life. Mm -hmm. or, you know, and and so it was just a very moving email because he he wouldn't have shared any of this stuff with me if I hadn't written this book. Mm -hmm. But he said, you know, he feels like it was transformative for him that like he he really is sort of able to turn a page now um in his own life just by having sat down with those 270 pages i wrote so mm -hmm. you know trust me i've never gotten that type of response from any other book <laughs> i've written before and I've, and I've gotten a lot of those um but you know it's it's not selling particularly well compared to a lot of my other books so it's interesting yeah. it's like yeah. um i've almost felt a little bit blacklisted by like kind of the the running establishment you know, there was okay. like almost like a deafening silence from <laughs> from certain quarters. But but then I've had this like intensely 
positive reaction from the people who actually do, you know, pick it up and read it. So, you know, I kind of feel two ways about it in that regard. I know that's a little surprising to me, I I guess, just because I feel like it's, it's a really common story that running is both a coping mechanism and an outlet and an escape for a lot of people in bad places, be it, um, you know, from broken homes or abuse or, or mental illness, or there's a lot of kind of bad places that exist in the human condition. And it seems like that story is not uncommon at all. Right. And even actually, this is, it's not entirely founded, but I mean, it's, it's, it's what stands out to me. I had a kind of theory for a while that, that often those, those people that have been through those kind of things end up being better runners because they're so used to the suffering. Yeah. And I don't know that that's, it doesn't apply to the masses, but it, I still think there's some truth to that. So it's, it's, I don't know. It just seems kind of surprising to me that you would receive that response, I guess, from whoever it is that, you know, is, is giving that to you. Yeah. I mean, you know, who, who knows? Because I mean, it's tough to interpret silence. So, right. I mean, I mean the, the book just could simply be flawed in ways that I'm not hearing about from the people who don't like it or <laughs> I don't know. Right. Um, so yeah, well, maybe it's, maybe it's a genre change too. Maybe that's, it could be something as simple as like you're you typically are writing I'll say how to books versus you know what's what's essentially a, a memoir as far as I understand it. Yeah. Um, you know it's it I kind of mix those with the show here with the podcast and I like to just because that human ele- element transcends just us as athletes. It, it can apply to anybody, and I think that's important. So like it's it's my focus, which is why I was like. You know, I, I saw your other books and as we were emailing, saw the the new book. And I was like, that's awesome because I love talking about that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't know. I'll, I'll uh, send some positive thoughts out there. Hopefully sales pick up because it's, to me, such an important topic to discuss. So um, I have a couple other quotes I heard you say as you were talking about it. And you were talking about... Um, I think you said to love is to sacrifice. Um, I, you may have been speaking about your wife at the time. Um, I think about love as a verb instead of just kind of a, I'll say the Disney understanding of love where it's like it, you're in love and it's just, a, just this emotion you feel versus kind of my, my prescription of love is like you love somebody, you're something you're doing, you know, and, um, I don't know. I kind of want to get your opinion on that, I guess, since you said, I think you said to love is to sacrifice. Uh, yeah. Love is sacrifice is the title of one of the chapters okay. in the book. Um, and yeah, what I mean by that is like, suppose um, this is just going to take all the, the poetry out of it, but like, suppose, <laughs> suppose you were gonna, going to try to measure love. Like you're going to try and find some objective way of measuring how much a person really loves another person. Mm-hmm. I, I, my vote would be you measure it through what and how much they sacrifice for that person. Like mm-hmm. that, that, that is proof of love. I mean, that is the nature of the doing for me. I mean, because mm-hmm. you're sort of putting them before you. It, you know, if you're Robinson Crusoe alone on, the, on an island, well, it makes perfect sense to only care about yourself, you know, only look right. after yourself. But if you are live in a community and you profess to love other people in it, exactly what do you do differently from Robinson Crusoe? You start putting other people's needs ab- above yours. And so that's that's the theme I get into in, in the book. And of course, you know, running is tied in there. Um, you know, for me, like I, I am just by wiring a very internal person i'm very Mm. self-focused uh my my older brother the often mentioned in this interview josh he he when i was in high school he nicknamed me project matt because that just hits the nail on the head like i'm always i'm treating myself as like this project like i'm Uh i'm just trying to be on the ascent uh 
and uh, which is fine, uh, but you know it doesn't necessarily make you the best brother or son or husband or what have you. And and I was a, I was very much this way as a runner too. Like I I would never run for others in any way. Like I I'm the sort of maniac who like if I'm running in a race and the person next to me like grabs his chest and falls to the ground. I would be really torn about whether to stop or not. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm just being honest. Uh, but you know, as I've gotten older and and um, just experiencing, we haven't really touched on it explicitly, but the book gets into uh, my relationship with my wife, who who has bipolar disorder, and you know, her diagnosis kind of, you know, threw both of our lives sideways. Mm-hmm. My running played into that because. Um, it became a source of the strength I needed, but but I also just learned to experience running in different ways. And in this particular chapter, chapter of the book, I I talk about sort of some experiences I have with actually beginning to run for people other than myself, and it's been really cool. <laughs> you know, like I I get it now because so many other people do that very naturally from from day one. They mm-hmm. they and there are a lot of different ways you can quote-unquote run for others but yeah so that's the whole theme of that chapter okay um have you read uh anti-fragile by nassim talib no okay so um i I think so kind of along the lines you're talking about running as like almost mental exercise and learning to kind of endure and deal with suffering i think about running as like a very intensely personal journey inwards um, I think maybe somewhere else you said, uh, or I read, you said uh, running as meditation that doesn't suck or something along those lines. And I definitely think about running as meditation, but um, <laughs> so like in Anti-Fragile, Nassim Tlaib talks about how you have to have resistance to become stronger. It's kind of like if you grow a tree in a vacuum and then it gets hit by a wind, it's going to get just destroyed because it needs that wind as it's growing to become stronger and, you know, to become something um, that can stand up to the challenges of its life. Um, So I'm kind of wondering if you think it is suffering necessary to achieve self-actualization. I'm I'm saying that in the terms of like Maslow's hierarchies, hierarchy of needs, self-actualization. Yes. I mean, (laughs) that's, that's what the, parable of Siddhartha Gautama's upbringing is all about. You know, he was born a prince with well-intentioned parents who tried to protect him from all suffering. Um, And of course, that's impossible. Like, even if you're a prince, uh, it can only work for so long. But, you know, life, you know, if if life is perfect today, just wait a day. You know, it's going (laughs) to hardship is coming so all you achieve by pampering and coddling and spoiling a child in that way is same thing with the tree raised in a vacuum you you raise a, a human being who is not prepared to to handle suffering so you know it's a weird dynamic because you can't really wish suffering upon yourself like you can in the abstract oh i need suffering to grow stronger but mm-hmm you know, then, you know, your wife gets diagnosed with bipolar disorder, like, well, if I could have that one back, you know, know, because that's a life sentence. And we've both grown through having to deal with that adversity. And I wouldn't want to wish that away either. You know, the, right. I mean, that's life. It's messy. It's, it's, uh, it's contradictory in a, a lot of ways, but yeah, the short answer to your question is, I mean, I'm not the expert on this, but any true expert, any any uh, spiritual leader worth his or her salt will say, yes, suffering is essential. <laughs> yeah, it makes me think about, um, from like a, I, so I grew up in a Christian tradition, um, and there's a saying about, um, it's not your cross to bear, and people bear different crosses, and, and, and the analogy being of different sizes and different weights, and, and people have a capacity a varying capacity to deal with kind of suffering. Um, you know, since we can't and really shouldn't want to impose that suffering, especially, you know, with mental illness on anybody, I mean, is that the purpose of sport where we can impose suffering on ourselves? Yeah. 
Yeah. So, I mean, so many people, especially, you know, I mean, I had a pretty charmed childhood, um, mm -hmm. you know, on, on the spectrum <laughs> of all possible childhoods. Yeah. You know, mine, mine was pretty darn good. But you know, if you talk to people like this guy I mentioned, uh, who, uh, you know, was abused as a kid, became a drug addict, worked through it all. Um, you know, he, he, he said, and I hear this over and over again, you know, especially for folks who had really rough starts. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I like running because it's suffering that I can control, right. um, you know, because, the, you know, it's it's foolish to try to annihilate suffering. That's what that's why you take drugs. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's yeah. not a solution. I mean, it's a very it's like this repeated short term solution that, mm -hmm. you know, doesn't it only makes things worse well yeah it it, it it inflicts its own suffering right so you know escape is not an, a, a possibility so the only other op option is to be, become a person who can handle suffering mm -hmm. um and that's what you know endurance sports does it's just like it's this like tidy little microcosm of, of life uh where suffering is guaranteed but you're in control um I hear this again and again. I interviewed for this comeback quotient book I'm working on now, um, Rob Carr, ultramarathon uh, champion, mm -hmm. uh, who suffers from major depression. You know, he said exactly the same thing about, um, you know, just you know the places where his mind and body go in a 100 mile foot race. Um, he just he feels at home you know at the, mm -hmm. at the absolute worst moments he feels like this it, it, he 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 articulates it very well but part of the way he articulates it is to say words can't even express it but he just right. feels this deep connection between the depths of his worst depressions and those those moments of maximum suffering in races but like they're they're the same, but they're they're crucially different. Where he's one is one he's choosing, um, and in a sense controlling, mm -hmm. um, and he's able to take some of that back to face you know life uh, in all its harshness. So Matt, we're running a little short on time. I want to be mindful of your time. I could probably talk to you all day. <laughs> um, so there's a question I like to ask everybody um because this is again another thing that kind of spans humanity and has to do with food i like to ask if you can only choose one food for recovery for the rest of your life what do you choose oh i'm just gonna blow this one i i, <laughs> I have <laughs> tell me yours i just i need to buy a little time here i know uh mine um it depends on whether you want the PC answer or whether you want the real answer. And I find there is a difference. I was going to ask you about, about this as well. Um, so like I have a, like a recovery drink that I use that's, I think is great. Um, but my go-to comfort food is probably going to be like either ice cream or some kind of pastry, most likely ice cream. Um, I, I, this is what I wanted to especially ask you because I you mentioned eating Captain Crunch I think after your <laughs> Iron Man and saying well obviously that's not like the best not the best food for recovery but it's almost like it's almost like there's and this is a common thing I get people say uh, pizza they say tacos they say beer it's unless it's like I've talked to like a couple of registered dietitians and they're like no I'm eating a salad or something but for for the vast majority of people. It seems like that re that recovery food is almost mental recovery rather than yeah than physical recovery. So I I just curious like because you ate the Captain Crunch, you talked about eating the Captain Crunch for the like you experienced that as well. It's like you're not so concerned about the physical aspect as you are like getting your brain back. Yeah, I mean you know I do so many. I wasn't sure what you meant by recovery, but you know because I do so many. Um, you know, sort of epic workouts mm -hmm. um, where, but it's not a race, you know, it's just, you're out right. on a hard workout and you five hours, but I mean, that's and... every weekend. So yeah. if I junked out after every single one of those, <laughs> it, that adds up, you know what I mean? So, yeah. But after a race, it's anything goes. And I, I get annoyed when, you know, cause, you know, I, I like to keep it real. And there are some, you know, dietitians out there 
uh, who will talk about, you know, oh, you absolutely shouldn't have beer after a race because, you know, you're dehydrated and blah, blah, blah. And my attitude is like, come on, folks. <laughs> like, you're, you're not going to be able to walk downstairs unassisted for the next two days. Who gives a shit <laughs> whether you dehydrate <laughs> yourself a little more? You, right. need, you need a break. You yeah. know what I mean? And yes, we are, we are not just, you know, uh, an athlete is not an exercise machine. We're human beings. And you you absolutely have to. Uh, this is a point I make explicitly in diet cults. Um, sometimes something that is on paper good for the mind and bad for the body is actually also good for the body. You know what I mean? Right. You know, right. <laughs> so you, you have to pay attention to both and just be a human being. Perfect answer. So I think you did well. You didn't, didn't blow that one. <laughs> I actually didn't name a food. So <laughs> no, no, but that's okay. That's okay. I mean, I'm, I'm after the, the essence rather than the, for, at least from you, I was after the essence so that we got that. Um, Fair enough. So if you're on YouTube, I'll have links in the description where you can hop over to Amazon and buy various different kinds of Matt's books. Definitely the ones we've talked about in this conversation. Absolutely pick up Life is a Marathon. Uh, Matt, if people want to follow you, get in touch with you, where can they find you? Uh, my website is mattfitzgerald.org. Okay. Um, .com is someone else. Uh Twitter at MattFitRider, Instagram, Fitzgerald.matt. And I am on Facebook too. I'm all maxed out for friends. You'll have to get, <laughs> get on the get on the list. Well, plenty of other places to follow you. So thanks for coming on the show today, Matt. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Take care.